In this video, we discuss two addictions we haven't covered before, as well as two different kinds of values. We also discuss the issue of faking vulnerability. Mm -hmm. We'll see you in there. So Matt got this as uh, a question um, through his Facebook page and, and we wanted to respond to it. It was initially kind of brought up as like video gaming and where do we choose to invest our time in relationships? And, and um, you know, it's, it's sort of the distractions of life, but I'll, I'll pitch it over to you for a moment, Matt. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's something that I think about a lot because it, it showed up in, in my marriage. And it's something that I talked about in the book, and I wish I could remember specifically where. And I was, I was talking about men specifically at that time. But I have no doubt that there are plenty of examples of, of women who their stated values and their lived values don't necessarily align with one another. But I think I can speak more effectively to the so-called typical male experience. And, and that is, I think, that at least in my world, that the typical guy that I encountered that's married would say that his marriage and his family, and when I say family, I don't necessarily mean his family of origin, but like his wife and his children, that those are his the things he values most in the world, that he cares about most, that he ranks number one, number two, tied respectively, whatever. And then he would maybe talk about, you know, like job, friends, hobbies, in whatever order, you know, he, he, he literally believed them to, to rank in his life. But then I believe if you were to like superimpose a pie chart that, that sort of computed all of the time that this person invested in, in these areas, I think that we would see wives and children being on, on average, the smaller pieces of the pie chart versus how much time is being spent at work, how much time is being invested in hobbies, how much time is being invested. And I think we can count like video games and, and distractions like television and watching sports and things like that. Um, and I don't mean to demonize any of those activities, by the way, I hope it doesn't sound like I am. I just think there's a discrepancy between what people say is the most important thing to them and then what, how, how their actions reflect their actual lived values, where they invest the most time and energy. And, and it's just my belief that trust erosion is the number one culprit for dysfunctional relationships. It's the, in my estimation, the greatest predictor, if you will, of a relationship that's going to go south break up or in case of marriage and in divorce. And I think the discrepancy between what we say we think is most important and how we actually invest our time can result in trust erosion. If we're telling our wife, our children, if we're saying these are the things that I value most in this world, but then our wives and our children are constantly experiencing us escaping to play video games, to play golf, to put in 55 hours at the office, to do whatever. Um, and again, I don't think any of those things are bad, I, I, not, not on their own, but when there's an absence of like mutual understanding and trust with our closest interpersonal relationships, just think bad things can happen. I think it makes sense for a wife to interpret a guy who plays video games all the time as he'd rather play video games than be with me. Like that doesn't seem unreasonable to me, but I'd really like to hear like where you guys come out on this. Some of that is an image thing. That was the first thing that came to mind to me. My stated values are all about my image. I want to have people see me a certain way, but how I live 
right? And that for addicts is a, is a huge thing. Once I walk out this door, people see a much different version of me in my addiction than they do when I'm here. Because I want, I want people to believe my stated values. That is a, is a big part of what we're talking about is so much of my stated value can be an image thing versus a goal thing. My stated value should be, my goal is to be here and recognizing my live value is back here. And I want to move toward that. Um, many times there are two different things. I want people to believe the stated value and what I live is just totally different. There's also the, the other conversation, which is, should it, should it matter? Like, right. should it matter? Should you care about the opinions of, you know, those strangers in the room? I, I, I've spent a lifetime being really concerned about the opinions, validation, acceptance of other people. And one of my, at age 43, one of the things I continue to work on, I'm intellectually aware of how unhealthy it is for me to crave the approval of others. And for me to learn how to just approve of myself, if you will, um, so long as I'm living right, like in alignment, going back to the beginning of this conversation with our stated values, I think that's how we like live our best life, self-fulfillment and not requiring other people to tell us we're good to feel good. Right. Um, but I mean, I'm still a threat. I'm absolutely still a threat to be afraid of what other people will think of me. I, I want to ask you a question because you've been asking and so how much did your emotional vocabulary expand after you got divorced? Oh God, good grief. I, it, it's not, I don't think that I wasn't loosely aware of the spectrum of emotions. It's that I think I learned how to name them, right? So it's specifically in the context of, of, of a vocabulary, being able to name them. I, I don't know. I, it's, it's difficult for me to remember me 15 years ago. For the same reason, probably that I'm prone to escape into books and video games and things like that. And why I take ADHD medicine every day. It's, I don't remember me. And so I, it's difficult for me to say, well, this is how I would have like thought and felt back then. I do remember experiencing the range of emotions throughout my life. And I do remember, you know, I talk about like in the book, specifically the story of my parents getting divorced. And that, that was my first encounter with something like really deeply painful in my life that I was constantly being triggered because I was like always saying goodbye to one of my parents and being 500 miles away from one of them. And I just didn't like it. And that was not a, an experience that anybody else I knew and my peer group could relate to on any level. So it's not something I would have ever said out loud to anybody. Mm -hmm. It was just something that I kept to myself. But I think... I got brave enough to say it out loud once I felt so miserable that I didn't, didn't care about the judgment of others. When Jay asked you that question, you know, did your emotional vocabulary increase after divorce? And you said, I've always known emotions. It's just, I put words to them. And I think you bring up a really good point because the interesting thing is we all know emotions in our bodies. We know what it feels like, you know, they, they sadness hits us differently than fear, you know? And um, so that's where it starts. And then, or that's where it started way back when, and then we put words to them. So if they feel anything that's not contentment and happiness, it, a lot of the guys that we see, 
it comes out as anger. So my work with them is to like, where do you feel it? Okay. Is it anger? Is it fear? Is it, uh, do you feel squashed? You know, what, what is it that you feel? Um, and then let's start expanding that vocabulary, you know, but the first place to start is in the body and learning mm -hmm. kind of what hits where. I think right around age 33, 34, I developed an awareness that everybody, like everybody sort of like hides these things. You know, you, you learn as an adult in a way you don't understand when you're kids that there's an enormous amount of shared humanity out there that a lot of us sort of hide for fear of like rejection, you know, because we don't want to be weird or, or, or anything like that or excluded. But the truth is like everybody craves the experience of I'm not alone. I know exactly what that's like. And so I, I learned pretty quickly the value of saying it out loud because then a bunch of people don't have to feel alone anymore. And some percentage of them will be brave enough to say it out loud. And hopefully two generations from now, we don't have this issue anymore. And it will do wonders for romantic relationships if that's the case. Yeah, yeah. The, so, you know, we were, we were talking about groups and one of the groups that I, I run right now is the basis is it's a safe place to be vulnerable because most, most men don't have that experience of there's a safe place for us to be vulnerable. Um, and that experience, you know, the, the childhood experience, some of us get stuck in that childhood experience of there's no safe place to be vulnerable. You know, you were bullied as a kid or, um, you know, didn't have the, the, experience with a parent or, or whatever of like, no, this is normal. It's okay to feel that way. It's like, nope, all vulnerability leads to pain. So I'm just not going to, I'm not going to do it, you know, and, and keep all of that stuff hidden. Mm. Doing that in a group, like a new group with the intention of heading toward vulnerability, you know, um, and I've been in groups where that's kind of the underwritten intent and you still have a whole bunch of people that just show up with the mask, you know, it's like, sure, I, sure. yeah, you know, I'm, I don't know if you've had this experience where you can imitate vulnerability. I, I can put something out there where I really feel like I'm, it's the humble brag, right? That's what we call it nowadays. It's the it's the look at me being humble, but I'm doing it in a way that you see. I think a lot of guys go there because it's, I, I know I'm supposed to be vulnerable, but I'm not really going to be because I'm still not sure if I can trust you. What's interesting to me is when I imagined what you just described and what I literally imagined wasn't interestingly enough an online experience, but that classic sit in a circle in a room with like, you know, eight to 15 people, I'd say, I'd say it all but I think it's because I've had so much practice doing it 15 mm -hmm. years ago. There's no chance. I'm like maybe the last person to speak up and it's going to require arm twisting from people on either side of me. I think we live in a day and age where, you know, you open up like that in a group and they're going to bash you because it's too, it feels too vulnerable. Um, yet there's other people that are going to be in the group that 
go, oh, thank goodness, somebody finally said it. They might not, depending on the, you know, they'll read the room and they might come to you later and go, thank you so much. Or at least you'll make them feel less alone, just like you said. Um, and hopefully more and more people would agree with you and kind of crowd out the men who are afraid to go there, however they show up, you know. Right when people show up broken and real and imperfect it typically in some people that are ready to go there in some people that haven't covered up with a false persona or a big persona or whatever they're typically like oh thank goodness somebody else is like me thank goodness i'm not the only one so i think you're really on to something there about we share our emotions in order to help people feel less alone well, thanks for joining us. Can video games actually help? And also, what's one way that learning can possibly harm a relationship? We'll cover that on the next episode. We'll see you there. Bye.